Hello, everyone, and welcome. This is Let's Sleep On It, Reclaiming Parenthood, the podcast. And I'm your host, Taylor Kulik, a sleep and well-being specialist and occupational therapist. My mission with this podcast is to examine the parenting narratives that dominate our culture and grow together as parents. Here, we will talk about biological infant sleep, as well as many other parenting-related topics. And you'll also hear real empowering journeys from parents who are parenting against the grain. I hope that you walk away from each episode feeling inspired, empowered, and supported. Please remember that none of the information shared in this podcast is medical advice, and you should always speak with a trusted healthcare provider if you have any concerns. Let's dive into today's episode. So I have been searching for a clean electrolyte company that I love for a really long time, and I just hadn't found anything that I liked, that I enjoyed the taste of, that I felt good about the ingredients, until I found Element. And I actually got a sample from somebody, and I was instantly hooked. They have really good flavors. They're actually tasty. Like, I enjoy drinking them, whereas other brands that I've tried in the past I really haven't enjoyed. And you can just put them straight into your water, um, and they're so good. So they have salt, magnesium, and potassium potassium in them. And a lot of people don't realize how important electrolytes are for true hydration. A lot of us are chugging water because we're being told that we need more water, but we don't, we're not drinking the electrolytes that we need to actually hydrate our bodies. And so Element is a great choice. They also make seasonal chocolate flavors that are really good as like a hot chocolate. And you can put them in your coffee if you want, or just with hot water and like milk or just plain. I like to drink them plain. I love Element. I have at least one pack a day. Electrolytes are so important, especially for pregnancy and breastfeeding. So if you're lacking your electrolytes, give Element a try. You can use my link, Drink Element. It's drinklmnt.com slash Taylor K. And you will get a free gift with your purchase, which is a sample pack. So you can try all of the flavors. Again, that's drinklmnt.com slash Taylor K. Hello friends, welcome back. Today I am going to chat about the history of sleep training. So I did a little bit of a deep dive a while back about where sleep training even came from because obviously like we know sleep training is kind of a big deal, um, especially if you live in a Western country like the United States or Canada. I know it's gaining popularity in Europe and other places as well. So it's kind of just become like the norm. It's what parents are expected to do. Um, and there's a lot of pressure to sleep train. So I know I knew a little bit about the history of sleep training, but I wanted to do a deep dive and actually read some of the, the pieces of literature that were kind of the origins of sleep training and figure out exactly where it started and why it started. So um, let's start with this – the cultural shift that happened in the 1800s or so. So prior to the 1800s, there was no mention of sleep training or leaving a baby to cry or sleep schedules or anything like that really in any literature or books or anything. 
So it appears that it, there was this cultural shift that began to take place in the 1800s during the Industrial Revolution, and it changed the way doctors and parents perceived infants' sleep and, pe- and feeding patterns. And this is really also when the medicalization of motherhood and parenthood really started. So basically, mothers or parents began looking to the advice of quote-unquote experts, and usually these were doctors or other self-proclaimed parenting experts, to tell them how to parent. So it's interesting to note that this is also around the same time when the medicalization of birth began. And birth began moving from happening in the home to happening in the hospital. And with this shift toward medicalized childbirth, there were a lot more separation-based practices between mother and baby. So I think that's a really interesting point in all of this. And this shift actually really makes sense if you think about it from a cultural perspective because we were humans were really just shifting the entire way that they lived during this time this in, the in, industrial revolution so there was a shift from living intergenerationally that is a hard word to say um, living with family members extended family members aunts grandparents parents etc and at that time people were getting parenting wisdom passed down from their parents and grandparents and, and aunts etc And this was kind of the village, right? But during the Industrial Revolution is when this shift happened to families moving to larger cities to work in factories. And that essentially ended a lot of the intergenerational living for a lot of families. So they were moving away from their villages into these big cities. And not only this, But people were often very overworked and exhausted with the introduction of shift work in factories and women entering the workforce. So getting babies to adapt to the family's schedules, including their sleep schedules, was a welcome new idea. Some of the first literature about sleep training actually came about in Germany between the 1830s and the 1890s or so. And this literature focused on helping babies get on sleep schedules and encouraging parents to not rush to comfort babies, but rather letting them try to resettle on their own. However, it doesn't seem like this literature was really strict. Like it wasn't super rigid. These doctors and self-proclaimed experts also recognized that sometimes babies are just not going to be able to resettle on their own and that parents shouldn't be rigid in their approach to sleep. But then in the late 1800s, what happened was there was a rise in concern over germs and transmitting infection. And so parents were encouraged to not touch their babies as much to prevent transmission of infection. And in 1891, Dr. Anna Fullerton, so a woman, which I think is really fascinating, wrote the book, A Handbook of Obstetric Nursing. And she advised parents not to pick up their baby every time they cry. So this is a quote from Dr. Anna Fullerton from her book. If a baby is picked up every time he cries, he will soon develop the habit of crying insistently each time he wakes until the mother does pick him up. This is not a good habit for the baby or the mother. It interferes with the baby's sleep and with the mother's work or rest. It teaches the baby that crying will give him control over his parents, whereas a baby should learn that such habitual crying will only cause his parents to ignore him. 
So fast forward to three years later in 1894, and we have this doctor, his name is Dr. Luther Emmett Holt, published a book called The Care and Feeding of Children. And this is actually one of the first pieces of literature that we can trace that really popularized non-responsive sleep training similar to how we know it today. And he actually coined, or I don't know if I would say he coined it, but this is the first time in literature that we can trace back that we see the term cry it out mentioned. In his book, he states that in the first two days of life, babies should be fed, quote, only four or five times daily since there is very little milk secreted at this time, unquote. Holt also advised parents to follow a super specific feeding frequency schedule in the first year of life. And he has this chart in the book. You can find it for free online. Um, And he has this chart in the book that says, you know, certain ages, here is how many times a day babies need to be fed. And he says that babies five to 12 months old do not need any night nursing sessions between the hours of 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. Isn't that interesting how this doctor knows that about every single baby? Like there couldn't be any thing you know different any any nuances any individuality of these babies he advises mothers to completely wean from the breast by one year old and he states quote the dangers of weaning are much less than those of continuing to nurse as is so often done after the milk has become very scanty and poor in quality unquote so here we can see of course that there is a lot of un inaccurate information in Dr. Holt's book, um, especially about breastfeeding and feeding schedules and breast the composition of breast milk. We know that um, breast milk does not become scanty and poor in quality. That is not a thing. So let's move on to his advice regarding sleep. Holt states that an infant should never sleep in the same bed as his mother because, quote, there is always the temptation to frequent nursing at night, which is injurious to both mother and child, unquote. He goes on to suggest that night wakes are habitual and often caused by food or feeding. So in other words, it's the mother's fault for feeding her baby too much, right? We get that idea a lot with current sleep training culture. It's the parent's fault for supporting their babies, for nursing their babies. It's our fault that our babies are waking and have needs. Or that they are caused by bad habits like, quote, when the child is taken from its crib whenever it cries, unquote. Although I do want to make mention of this because I was really fascinated by this as I was reading his book. Um, I didn't read the whole thing. I just kind of skimmed through it. But Holtz in his book and in his section on sleep, he actually points out that one cause of disturbed sleep is due to airway obstruction from enlarged adenoids and tonsils. And I thought this was fascinating because remember, this was back in 1894. Here is one of the fathers of non-responsive sleep training who first as far as we know, used to the term cry it out. And yet he is also acknowledging that there is nuance to this discussion and that there are multiple causes of disturbed sleep. And he did say in his book that you should only leave a baby to cry when you know that the crying is quote unquote habitual, which of course we don't we don't know if the crying is habitual. We can't always know that because babies could have needs that we are not aware of. And being comforted and being close to a parent is a need. But I digress. That's besides the point. The point is, is that even at this time, this doctor, this particular doctor, and I imagine other doctors at the time, knew about airway obstruction causing sleep issues and would not recommend sleep training for every baby. And yet today, most pediatricians are 
blanket recommending sleep training to infants. And most of them do not have an awareness of airway obstruction as a potential cause of sleep disruption. Um, Many pediatricians have no idea about the importance of nasal breathing and, and how airway obstruction can impact children. And they will often dismiss parents who come to them with these issues. And so I just thought that was really fascinating because Again, even one of the, you know, grandfathers or fathers of sleep training acknowledged that there were many causes of sleep disruption and that cry it out wasn't the solution to all of them. Okay, so let's now move to the part where he he talks about cry it out. So Holt's book was perhaps the first that mentioned the idea of crying being good in order to expand a newborn's lungs. And it is almost certainly the first time the term cry it out is mentioned, at least in any published literature. So what does Holt have to say um, about how a mother should approach a baby who cries out of, quote, temper, habit, or to be indulged, unquote? So he says, it should be simply allowed to cry it out. This often requires an hour and in extreme cases, two or three hours. A second struggle will seldom last more than 10 or 15 minutes and a third will rarely be necessary. Okay, so here we have basically the birth of the cried out technique. Let's fast forward about 30, 34, 35 years when we we have the behaviorists that enter the scene. So in the year 1928, John B. Watson published a book called Psychological Care of Infant and Child. Now, John B. Watson, you may have heard his name before. He was a very famous and well-known behaviorist. Behaviorism is a theory of learning that suggests that all behaviors are learned from the environment. In his book, Watson states, quote, parenthood, instead of being an instinctive art, is a science, the details of which must be worked out by patient laboratory methods, unquote. Interesting. So um, in his chapter on day and night routines, Watson walks parents through a rigid nighttime routine and advises them to give the child and the room one last look over to make sure everything is in place and that all their needs are met, turn the lights out, and then close the door. And he says, if he howls, let him howl. A week of this regime will give you an orderly bedtime. Interesting, right? Watson believed mothers must not give their child too much emotional attention so that they could be a blank slate to shape. And he advised mothers to shake hands with their children upon waking. He also very interestingly encourages or encouraged parents to strap their eight-month-old infants onto a toilet seat and leave them in the bathroom alone until they void. So I thought this was really fascinating when I was reading this section because And you may have heard me talk about this before, but I will often compare kind of our perception of sleep training and how babies learn to sleep to how they learn and develop other skills like toileting. And I will say to parents, you know, you wouldn't leave your infant alone on the toilet and expect them to go to the bathroom by themselves, right? Instead, they learn through relationship and connection and they learn through us first helping them as needed. And then they take on a little bit and a little bit more of that on their own over time. And that is how they learn these skills. And I use this as an, as an example because most people today would think it would be absurd to leave an infant alone on a toilet seat alone. Okay. So that's the main point. I'm not saying infants can't sleep, sit, sit on toilet seats, right? I understand elimination communication. This is an entirely different thing we're talking about. Um, so I had no idea that Watson wrote about this in his book and actually believed that parents should strap 
their eight-month-old infants onto a toilet seat. Um, so he says starting at eight months old and leave them in the bathroom alone in the morning. So it's not even like you're responding to your infant's cues and you think that they have to go to the bathroom. It's at a certain time every morning you strap them onto the potty and leave them there until they void. It's absolutely nuts. His own granddaughter, Mary Loretta Hartley, had this to say about him. Grandfather's theories infected my mother's life, my life, and the lives of millions. How do you break a legacy? How do you keep from passing a debilitating inheritance down generation to generation like a genetic flaw? So if you look at more into the history of John B. Watson, he had multiple children and his he, there was a lot of family issues. I think multiple of his children attempted to commit suicide. There was a lot of addiction, drugs, alcohol abuse, et cetera. So, you know, this clearly this wasn't working. This parenting method didn't work for his his children to make them confident, loved, you know, adults who are capable of coping with life. Um, and so it's it's tragic. It's absolutely heartbreaking for them. And, you know, we really should just maybe think twice before taking parenting advice from this person. In Darshan Narvaez's 2011 article called The Dangers of Crying It Out, she describes a government pamphlet issued around the time of Watson. She says, a government pamphlet from the time recommended that mothering meant holding the baby quietly in tranquility-inducing positions and that the mother should stop immediately if her arms feel tired because the baby is never to inconvenience the adult. A baby older than six months should be taught to sit silently in the crib. Otherwise, he might need to be constantly watched and entertained by the mother, a serious waste of time. Wow. So you can see here that, that not only was John B. Watson publishing a book and publishing literature and was influencing parents um, with his ideas of how to be a parent, but he was also influencing the government to um, to also educate parents in this, this same uh, paradigm or worldview of parenting. Um, so that is Watson in the 20s. Now let's move on to the 40s and 50s when there is an emergence of some new parenting experts and they use a similar worldview. They're kind of building off of Watson's behaviorist approach, but they kind of soften things a little bit. They kind of make it seem a little more gentle, a little more loving, um, and parents now feel that they have choices. So you know, a lot of parents were like, we need choices. We don't really love this rigid, cold sleep training advice from from Watson. Um, so, the, you know, one that we probably all know of is Dr. Benjamin Spock. He wrote a really popular book called Baby in Child Care. So while he rejected Watson's cold treatment of babies and children, he still promoted similar rigid sleep and feeding schedules and also encouraged parents to get their babies sleeping through the night very early on. His techniques, though, felt warmer to parents, yet, again, they were born from that very same parenting ideology and behaviorist ideology of his predecessors. While new parenting experts like Dr. Spock and others of the same time made parents feel like they had options, they also solidified this ideology of training babies into the cultural norm. So soon it was really no longer a question of what is the best parenting approach or should babies be sleeping through the night or should babies be on a feeding schedule um, or should parents sleep train, but really more of a question of when and how. It was during this time period that we can really see how theories and ideologies that weren't rooted in developmental science became viewed as facts. Now we fast forward another 30, 40 years to the 1980s, which is when we begin to see our first glimpses of modern day sleep training as we know it today. 
There were two big doctors, big time doctors who published very, very popular books that introduced sleep training ideas and practices, which largely shape the current sleep training strategies that we know of today. So around this time, we also noticed an increase in the medicalization of normal child sleep, medicalization or pathologization of normal infant sleep. So in other words, we see normal child sleep and feeding patterns increasingly being labeled as medical problems that require interventions to solve. In 1985, Dr. Richard Ferber, we all know Ferber, published the book Solve Your Child's Sleep Problems. In his book, he advocated for a method of sleep training called controlled crying or graduated extinction, which is essentially letting a child cry alone for longer and longer lengths of time. Today, we still know this method as the Ferber method, or we also call it Ferberizing. But it's really interesting to note that Dr. Ferber has since updated his book and publicly spoken out saying that his beliefs on sleep training have been misunderstood and that the Ferber method is not for everyone. Um, So it's not that a lot of times you might see something that says like Ferber has retracted and said, you know, it's not like he doesn't really believe in in cry it out or sleep training. That's not really true. Um, But he did say that the approach is not for every baby. And what do we have? We have lots and lots of sleep trainers, lots of lots of pediatricians who are basically prescribing the Ferber method or a modified Ferber method um, to all babies, one size fits all. So this is an interview of Dr. Ferber's um, per NPR. And I'm so I'm quoting him in this interview. And this is what he says about it. The so-called Ferber method, the approach of allowing a child to cry for longer and longer periods, he or Ferber, he reserves only for those families who want to break what Ferber calls bad sleep habits. And interestingly as well, according to NPR, Ferber also changed his mind about co-sleeping. And whereas in his first edition of his book, he basically said parents shouldn't co-sleep, he now believes co-sleeping works fine for many families. And it, it seems his approach is more of a do what works for your, your family and your needs kind of approach. So he's not as like hardcore advocating for sleep training as a lot of people think he is, or he was. A couple of years after Ferber's book was published, another popular sleep book hit the bookstores. Dr. Mark Weisbluff published Healthy Sleep Habits, Healthy Child in 1987. And in his book, he advocated for complete extinction or cry it out method. So simply put, you put your child in their crib, close the door, and you don't come back until the morning unless there is an emergency or they need a diaper change, which I'm not sure how you would know if there was an emergency or if they needed a diaper change if you are not checking on them. Since then, many other sleep training books and self-proclaimed proclaimed experts have come out with new sleep training methods, but really they're mostly just variations of these techniques. And oftentimes they're packaged with a gentle sounding name to make parents feel better about it. But most modern day sleep training techniques still involve some amount of non-responsiveness. But the good news is that while sleep training is still super popular, um, and I'm not sure if that will change anytime soon, I don't really think it will, it also seems that responsive sleep strategies have gained popularity as well. More and more parents are deciding that sleep training isn't right for their family. And thanks to the growth of social media, parents are now able to find communities where they feel supported and understood in their desire to respond to their children at all hours of the day. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please subscribe and leave a review if you feel called to. It really helps our message reach more parents. You can also follow me on Instagram at Taylor Kulik for similar content or visit my website at www.taylorkulik.com. 
I offer online courses where we really dive into infant and toddler sleep holistically. And we also offer one-to-one holistic sleep support services if you're looking to improve your child's sleep or shift patterns without sleep training. If you know a parent who would benefit from this podcast, please share. And if you'd like to financially support this podcast to allow me to create more episodes more often, you can visit anchor.fm slash Taylor Kulik. I hope you'll join me next time.